If you are a born-again Christian, you are part of the kingdom of God, and it's an ever-expanding kingdom. Here's Pastor John Randall. The kingdom of God is expanding. I mean, it started out small, but it has reached every corner of the globe for the most part. There are some areas that it has not yet gone, but it continues to go out. The kingdom of God is still expanding. The disciples could only see the inception of it. And so Jesus said, it's like a mustard seed. It started out really small, but it continues to grow even to the present time. We're seeing the kingdom of God expand. When somebody gets saved, the kingdom of God just expanded. When somebody comes to faith in Christ, the kingdom of God just grew and it continues to do so. Parables in the simplest sense are earthly stories with a heavenly meaning. In Luke 13, we're given a couple of important parables by the Lord concerning the kingdom of God. Now that phrase is familiar to most Christians, but what is Jesus talking about when he refers to the kingdom of God? What can we compare it to? And how can we be a part of it? A few key questions we'll address on today's edition of A Daily Walk with Pastor John Randall. We're in Luke 13, beginning in verse 18. Luke chapter 13, with a message entitled, The Kingdom of God. I want to draw your attention this morning, beginning in verse 18. And then he said, what is the kingdom of God like? And to what shall I compare it? It's like a mustard seed, which a man took and put in his garden. And it grew and became a large tree. And the birds of the air nested in its branches. And again, he said, to what shall I like in the kingdom of God? It is like leaven which a woman took and hid in three measures of meal till it was all leaven. And he went through the cities and villages, teaching and journeying toward Jerusalem. Then one said to him, Lord, are there few who are saved? And he said, strive to enter through the narrow gate. For many, I say to you, will seek to enter and will not be able When the ministry of Jesus began, the message that he preached and proclaimed was a message concerning the kingdom of God. In Luke chapter 4, verse 43, Jesus said, I must preach the kingdom of God to other cities. And for this reason, I have been sent. When he looked at his disciples in Luke's gospel, the sixth chapter, he said unto them, blessed are you poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. In Luke chapter eight, it says it came to pass afterward that he went through every city and village preaching and bringing glad tidings of the kingdom of God. In chapter eight, again, in verse 10, he said to you, it has been given to know the mysteries of the kingdom of God. Of God. In chapter 9, verse 11, when the multitudes knew it, they followed him and he received them and spoke to them about the kingdom of God. And he healed those who had need of healing. In Luke chapter 10, he said, And heal the sick there and say to them, The kingdom of God has come near you. Jesus said in Luke chapter 12, Seek first the kingdom of God. And all of these things shall be added to you. In light of this reoccurring theme of Jesus' preaching, people were expecting a kingdom to come. 
The disciples themselves were anticipating the arrival of a physical, external, visible kingdom. James and John were anticipating this to to such a degree that they asked their mother to ask Jesus, can we sit on your right hand and left hand in glory in your kingdom? They were expecting a kingdom to come. The religious leaders were confused about Jesus speaking about the kingdom. In Luke chapter 17, he answered them and he said, the kingdom of God does not come with observation, nor will they say, see here or see there. For indeed, the kingdom of God is within you. When Jesus stood before Pilate and he was questioned privately, Pilate asked Jesus about the kingdom. And Jesus said, my kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would fight so that I should not be delivered to the Jews. But now my kingdom is not from here. You get the idea that the emphasis of the ministry of Jesus had to do with a kingdom that was coming, the kingdom of God. But now it's been three years. Jesus has been ministering and he begins to take up another subject, that of his suffering. He begins to talk about The fact that he's going to be betrayed, he's going to be spit upon, he's going to have his beard plucked out, he's going to be crucified, and he would be buried, and on the third day, he would rise again. These words that Jesus spoke did not seem to make sense to the disciples. How can you have a kingdom coming if the king dies? It doesn't really make sense. How is this going to happen? And every day as they drew nearer to Jerusalem, Jesus continued to talk about his inevitable death. All of their preconceived messianic hopes and desires seemed to fade away. It is therefore with all of this background and the statements made about the kingdom that the people naturally wanted to know what the kingdom was like and how it was that they could enter into it. And so this morning, we read of Jesus speaking about the kingdom of God in the form of two parables. And we begin this morning by considering an illustration, number one, of the kingdom of God. And that's really what a parable is. It's an illustration. It's an earthly story with a heavenly meaning. It's a common illustration thrown alongside a spiritual teaching to make a point. Let me begin by saying, as we look at these two parables, there are... Two different interpretations, two separate views concerning the meaning of these parables, and I will point them both out to you as we proceed. But the first parable about the kingdom speaks of the expanse of the kingdom of God. The expanse. Jesus said, what's the kingdom of God like? Well, it's like a mustard seed that was planted in a man's garden, and eventually it grew, it became a tree, and birds of the air made their way and nested in its branches. He illustrates the kingdom of God by using one of the smallest seeds that they used in those days, the mustard seed. It was tiny. It was insignificant for the most part. And when you planted it in the ground, it would not produce normally a huge tree, but rather more like a bush. And you would harvest what was found there within that mustard plant and it would be used. But Jesus here describes this mustard seed like the kingdom of God that seemed insignificant. It was unknown, but it began to grow bigger and larger than anyone would have expected. In comparing this mustard seed to the kingdom of God, we observe the enormous expanse 
of God's kingdom. How it started out so small, but then it began to grow extremely large. Think about it. Jesus, there in Jerusalem, for 30 years, he lived in a place called Nazareth in relative obscurity. Nobody knew about him. 30 years as a carpenter, and then for three years he has ministry. And all the guys that were around him, everybody that surrounded him and served with him, they were common men. I mean, the kingdom of God began rather small. Jesus and 12 disciples there in Jerusalem, primarily around the area of Tiberias there in Galilee. But the kingdom of God would begin to expand and grow. The disciples, what they were observing was just really the inception of the kingdom, the very beginning. But they didn't anticipate that the kingdom of God would expand throughout the entire world. After the resurrection of Jesus and his ascension, Paul tells us that Jesus was seen by at least 500 witnesses. They saw him. On the day of Pentecost, when the Holy Spirit was given and the church was born, Peter stood up. You remember in the church, he preached the gospel boldly, and the Bible says 3,000 people were added to the church in one day. The kingdom was beginning to expand. It started out small, like that mustard seed planted, but it began to grow and continued to grow to the point where it went into Judea, to Samaria, and to the uttermost parts of the world, just like Jesus said. I recently read a book by a man named Timothy Keller, and the book was entitled, The Reason for God. And in it, in one particular chapter, he writes about the expanse of Christianity around the world. And this is what he said, quote, two case studies were done. He said in 1900, Christians comprised 9% of the African population and were outnumbered by Muslims four to one. Today, Christians comprise 44% of the population. And in the 1960s, they passed the Muslims in number. This explosive growth is not only among peasantry, but also among social and cultural establishment, including the Communist Party. At the current rate of growth, within 30 years, Christians will constitute 30% of the Chinese population of 1.5 billion people. And the pattern of Christian expansion differs from that of every other world religion. The, the center, for example, and majority of Islam's population is still located primarily in the Middle East. The original lands that, that were the demographic for Buddhism, Hinduism, Confucianism also primarily remain in those locations. By contrast, however, Christianity, first dominated by the Jews, centered in Jerusalem Then it was dominated later on by the Hellenists moving into the Mediterranean. Later, the faith was received by the barbarians of Northern Europe. And then in Christianity came to Western Europeans and then the North Americans. And today, most Christians in the world live in Africa, Latin America, and Asia. And soon Christianity will be centered in the Southern and Eastern hemispheres. The kingdom of God is expanding I mean, it started out small, but it has reached every corner of the globe for the most part. There are some areas that it has not yet gone, but it continues to go out. The kingdom of God is still expanding. The disciples could only see the inception of it. And so Jesus said, it's like a mustard seed. Started out really small, but it continues to grow even to the present time. We're seeing the kingdom of God expand. When somebody gets saved, the kingdom of God just expanded. When somebody comes to faith in Christ, the kingdom of God just grew. And it continues to do so. 
This is one interpretation of the parable. The second interpretation of the parable I will point out to you, and that is because the mustard seed grew larger than normal. Some have looked at this as abnormal growth. And we know from Daniel chapter 4, Ezekiel chapter 17, that the tree oftentimes would represent world power. We also find that the birds of the air, it says, found shade, built nests in this particular tree, in this abnormal growth. There is a rule that is often applied when you are interpreting scripture. That is when you are reading through the Bible expositionally, chapter by chapter, verse by verse, line upon line, precept upon precept. And it's a simple rule called expositional constancy or the law of first mention. And basically what that means is the first time something is used to symbolize something else that throughout scripture, it should be consistent. You remember in Mark chapter four, when Jesus told the parable of the soils, he said, unless you understand this parable, how are you going to understand all the rest of the parables? It seemed to be somewhat of a key to understanding the other parables that Jesus would speak. And in that parable, you remember Jesus talked about the seed of the word of God being sown on the ground. And he said, the birds of the air came down and they snatched that seed and removed it. Jesus went on to describe the symbolism, the idiom of those birds of the air. What did they represent? He said it represented Satan. Satan coming down and snatching the seed of the word of God so that person would not be converted. In light of that expositional constancy, law of first mention, people will look at this parable and they will say, the kingdom of God has expanded, but also there has been some corruption within it. And the birds of the air have made their nests and found shade within the kingdom of God. And I can see the validity of that. If you go back and look at, for example, church history, just a brief study of church history will reveal to you that that church history and Christian history isn't all that Christian. There were many things that were done in the name of Jesus that looked nothing like Jesus at all. It's a rather sad commentary on the history of the church. And it didn't take long for the birds of the air, as it were, to find shade. We find that even today that there are birds of the air hovering around, making their nests in the kingdom of God with aberrant theology and false doctrine and prosperity theology and all the rest of it. These types of things, birds of the air making their way in. We need to be aware of it, cognizant of these things. So I see the validity of both interpretations of the parable. You can make your decision. But nonetheless, I'm sharing that with you so you will know as well. But I think there is somewhat of a practical lesson even in this for us. When God starts a work or God's doing a ministry or God's working in a powerful way, we need to be careful that things don't come in and pollute what it is that God's doing or contaminate it. We need to be mindful of that. Well, following the parable of the mustard seed, considering the expanse of the kingdom, in the second parable of leaven, we see the influence of the kingdom. Look at verse 20. And again, he said, to what shall I liken the kingdom of God? It is like leaven, which a woman took and hid in three measures of meal till it was all leavened. Jesus, again, a second time says, what's the kingdom of God like? And then he gives an illustration. Well, the kingdom of God is like this. This is a common illustration. Leaven in a loaf of bread. 
Every Jewish listener would understand this. They had spent time growing up in a home where their mother would bake bread and you would, you'd get this huge amount of flour and you would mix it together and make it into dough. And then you would take sourdough or from a previous loaf of bread and, and you'd place it in it and it would begin to ferment. And the influence of that yeast or that former dough would begin to, as it expanded, would infiltrate, influence the entire loaf of bread, permeating it completely. And so when Jesus talks about the kingdom of God being like leaven, it would seem to imply again, it starts out very small. It only takes a little bit of yeast for the thing to expand and to grow. It starts out small, but then the influence of the kingdom of God begins to go in every direction, even to the point where it it affects all the corners of the globe. But the question I have in light of this, the influence of the kingdom of God, is why is it that Christianity more than any other religion in the world has been able to infiltrate and influence so many radically diverse and different cultures. Have you ever thought about that? Why? I've been around the world in different places, different continents, and the gospel goes out in these other places that cultures are completely different from ours. Why is it effective? Why is it being used? Well, for one thing, the power of the word of God. The power of the word of God and the work of the Holy Spirit in the world. These two things together have a powerful impact on no matter what culture you live in. There's power in the word of God. Power to change lives. Because here's the thing. You might look different. Your color may be different. Your culture may be different. But there's one thing that we all have in common. It's our hearts. They're sinful. They're wicked. There's a need for repentance. No matter what culture you live in. That is prevalent in every culture. That is a common denominator. We are all sinners. And the gospel speaks to that specific need within humanity. But I think another reason why the gospel and specifically Christianity has been so effective in other cultures among other people groups is it doesn't quench one's culture but crosses over cultural barriers. Christianity is not a Western religion that destroys local cultures. Rather, it has taken more culturally diverse forms than any other faith. Let me, let me explain. You don't have to become an American to be a Christian. Praise God. Listen, that'd be a real detriment in some places. You don't have to become an American. Nor do you have to, ladies, and you're praising God for this, wear a burqa where you cover your entire body. We can't even see your face out of the, you know, you don't have to do that when you become a Christian. And you're saying, I'm thankful for that. Guys, you don't have to grow out your beard and, and comb it up and wrap it around a turban when you become a Christian. Nor do you have to take your turban off when you become a Christian. You, you understand what I'm saying? You don't have to necessarily change the cultural identity that you have. What changes is the heart. What changes is your life. And that is why I think Christianity is so effective and how God uses the gospel because it doesn't bind heavy burdens on people. It actually sets them free to be who they are in Christ. You don't have to stop eating certain types of food just because, uh, you know, you became a Christian. And again, we say hallelujah. In the book of Acts, in the Jerusalem council, the Jews, many of the Jews, some of the Judaizers, as they come to be known, were trying to make Gentiles into Jews in order to be truly saved. These guys were trying to make Gentile converts become Jewish in order to truly be saved. And they were saying, if you are not a Jew, you're really not saved. And Paul, who was more Jewish than most, 
said, that's not true. That's a misrepresentation of the gospel of grace. You don't have to do that. You don't have to go through that. You can be who you are. God saves you and God changes you from the inside out. And so Paul was a great defender of grace and salvation through grace by faith. It's a gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. So we see in this parable, the interpretation of the kingdom of God having an influence that reaches far beyond Orange County, far into the world, around the world. The Bible tells us in Revelation, when we are there around the throne of God, we are given a picture of the heavenly scene where angels and elders and saints and the great cloud of witnesses are all gathered there. And it says that out of every tribe, every tongue, every nation, every people, we're gathered around the throne saying, you have redeemed us. That's what heaven's going to be like. Every kind of person, every kind of creed and and race and so forth, we've been redeemed. But there is, as I said, a second way to observe this parable, again, employing the rule of expositional constancy and the law of first mention, because leaven, usually throughout the scriptures, is used as a picture, as a symbol of evil. Back in the Old Testament, when you would offer your sacrifices, you couldn't have any leaven within them in the meal offering. Uh, During Passover, all leaven had to be removed from your house. Jesus talked about the leaven of the Pharisees and it spoke of hypocrisy. Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees. Evil influence, watch out for it. Paul in writing to the Galatians would tell them, who has bewitched you that you've turned away from the gospel? Don't you know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? So it seems that many times in the scriptures, it is used as a symbol of evil. And so some will look at this parable and they'd say, well, it appears that Jesus is saying that the, the influence of the kingdom is going to expand and so forth, but we have to be careful because there are other things that will try to infiltrate and ruin the work of the kingdom. And again, I see the validity in that interpretation as well. These are the illustrations of the kingdom of God. But the next thing we find in verses 22 through 24 is the admission into the kingdom of God. How does one become a part of this kingdom? And so as Jesus is making his way up to Jerusalem, one man comes to him and he asks him a very important question. He says, Lord, are there few who are saved? And Jesus said, strive to enter through the narrow gate. For many, I say to you, will seek to enter and not be able. In light of what Jesus had said about the kingdom, the question was raised, are there just a few people that make it in? Are there a few people that are saved or many people that are saved? The rabbis had an ongoing discussion, an ongoing debate about who was saved and who wasn't. Jesus doesn't answer that question. He encourages those listening to strive to enter in because there were many who would seek to enter in and would not be able. The word strive is significant. It is a word that means to agonize, to pursue It's a word that was used to describe athletes who would compete in various ancient games, whether they be running or or wrestling. And and it was in this preparation that you would strive, you would agonize, you would discipline yourself because there was a goal. It was a priority. You weren't lax in training. You had a goal in mind. There was a purpose in mind. And thus you were striving toward that goal. The apostle Paul uses much this same example when he talks about in Philippians, I press toward the goal of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. I am pressing, I am agonizing, I am striving, moving towards this in other words. 
Well, thanks for joining us today on A Daily Walk. To catch a replay of today's message from Pastor John Randall, simply go online to adailywalk.org or listen to us wherever you get your podcasts and through the Calvary South OC app. If you'd rather have a CD copy of the study from our Through the Bible series, we can send that to you for a cost of $5. Here's where to reach us toll-free, 877-242-0828. You can use that to order resources, or if you have any questions, that's 877-242-0828. We light up around here when a listener shares what God is doing in their life and how they're helped through the teaching of God's Word. If you feel led to write, here's our email address, adailywalk at gmail.com. That's adailywalk at gmail.com. It sure would be nice to connect with you. Hi, this is Michelle Randall with some exciting news about my new 366-day devotional, A Daily Walk for Women. You know, it's my prayer that these words from my personal devotional life will encourage you in this season that you're in and throughout the year. It's my hope that this devotional will really prime the pump and get you moving in the right direction each morning and be sort of like a pep talk from your personal cheerleader. I pray that you enjoy this labor of love as you look to Jesus each day. We pray this devotional will bring you hope as you seek Jesus and share in the wisdom of God from the heart of a pastor's wife. We're offering it for the special price of $15. Just call us and request a daily walk for women at 877-242-0828 or go online to adailywalk.org. Again, that's 877-242-0828. And please remember, it's your faithful contribution to the Lord's work at A Daily Walk that allows us to bring Pastor John's studies to the radio every day. We can't do it alone and totally rely on the Lord to make all this happen. Secure donations can be made at adailywalk.org. We'll pick up where we left off in the Gospel of Luke next time on A Daily Walk with Pastor John Randall. Blessings to you. This program is brought to you by Calvary South OC and made possible through your generous support.